And always, the person who is chosen as the time person of the year is someone who has great power, great position, great influence. They're the the movers and shakers of society. They are the self-made men who worked themselves up from nothing and now have it all. It's the people who are the controllers, the rulers of the world. It's the people like the, the Carnegies and the Rockefellers. It's the people like the Roosevelts and the Kennedys and the Clintons and the Bushes. It's the Bill Gates and the Steve Jobs. It's the people of great wealth, great power, great authority. People with huge bank accounts and major corporations. And when they speak, the world listens. And that is what greatness is considered. Greatness could be defined as power, prestige, authority, and acclaim. Influence and affluence. But how does the Bible define greatness? It's not in terms of wealth and it's not in terms of power and authority either. The Bible talks about greatness in terms of serving. And you know this well. On one occasion, two of Jesus' disciples came to him asking that they could be the greatest in the kingdom. Let us sit on your right hand and on your left, they asked. Jesus, however, corrected their thinking on this matter. True greatness, he taught, was not in having high positions or great power. It wasn't in wealth. Greatness was found in being a servant of all. He said to the twelve, Whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever desires to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And give his life a ransom for many. Mark 10, 43 to 45. So according to Jesus, true greatness is found in lowliness. So in Jesus' book, the lowly servant should be the person of the year. Jesus not only taught servanthood, he also modeled it. In fact, you'll notice there in Mark 10, 45, he says, For even the Son of Man, he uses himself. Even the Son of Man did not come to serve or to be served, but to serve. See, he modeled what it was to be a servant. The Son of Man had all the splendor, all the glory, all the power, every title of godhood, and he gave it up to be a servant. He he stooped to serve the needs of his disciples, to serve the needs of the poor and the needy in this world. What he did was he smashed the disciples' delusions of grandeur about greatness. Instead, he teaches them and shows them that the way of greatness is really humility. It's really humility. And that's the message that Paul was trying to get across to the Philippian church as well. That unity and the life in the church was to be defined by humility. In fact, look at Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4. Let nothing be done out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. So if the church is going to function, it needs to have a healthy dose of humility. But how do we live that out? What does that look like? Well, Paul presents here the example of Christ. He is the model of servanthood. 
Here in this really pivotal section of Philippians, we learn that Christ is our pattern for humble service. If you want to know what being a servant looks like, if you want to know what it looks to be a Christ-like servant, look no further than Jesus himself. Paul told the Philippians to look out for the needs of others. How do you do that? By looking like Christ. This section, verses 5 through 11, is all one section. We're going to take it in two different chunks because there's so much to talk about here. We're going to only get through verse 8 today. But this has been called the greatest Christological passage in the New Testament. Sometimes you'll hear it referred to as the Carmen Christi, the Christ hymn. A lot of biblical scholars believe that this section was an ancient Christian hymn that Paul adapted and placed here. Just like a preacher might sometimes quote from hymns of the faith. So Paul quotes from a hymn here in order to make his point about Jesus. Now, that's not a settled fact. We don't know for certain whether this was a hymn or not. In fact, as I've studied the issue, and there's a mountain of literature to read on it, as I looked at it, I believe that this was Paul's original words. I don't think he was borrowing from a hymn here necessarily. But the point that comes across is the humility of Jesus. And certainly this section is poetic, and certainly it has uh, great literary qualities. But it gets at this point that Jesus humbled himself. And so when you look at this, it is equal parts application and theology. And sometimes the temptation might be to talk only about the theology of this passage. Or you can go the other way and talk about the application of it and miss the great theological truth. So we're going to try and hold those in balance a little bit as we go through this morning. The theology, but also what's it teaching us? What are we supposed to learn from here? Because... Paul is actually using this section in a very interesting way. Normally, we take ordinary things and use them to illustrate theological truths. Well, here, Paul is taking a deep theological truth to illustrate an ordinary thing. What does humility look like? Well, let me tell you by looking at how Jesus stepped into human flesh and sacrificed himself for us. That's what humility looks like. Well, if Christ is our pattern for humble service, what is the pattern that he leaves? I want to give it to us in three words this morning. These three qualities are what makes a Christ-like servant. First of all, Jesus modeled for us selflessness. He was a selfless servant. The instructions already found in in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, is find their best expression in Christ himself. He was perfectly selfless. So if anyone wants to see what humble service looks like, look at Jesus. And selflessness is the opposite of selfishness. The principle of self-forgetfulness that we talked about earlier applies here. It's not thinking of oneself. It's instead focusing on the needs of others, considering what they need instead of always, always turning it back on ourselves. Andrew Murray, pastor from many years ago, once stated, the humble person is not one who thinks meanly of himself or lowly of himself. He simply does not think of himself at all. And that's the idea of selfless here. It's not that a person who's humble walks around kind of deprecating themselves, but rather it's a person who is not thinking of themselves at all. It's it's somebody who puts the attention on others. And Jesus did that. Look at verse 5. 
The Bible says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What's the mind that we're supposed to have? He tells us here, the mind of Christ. In fact, if you go back up to verse 2, he had already told the Philippians, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now he's going to tell us what that mind is. If we're all to think and, and to have this like-mindedness, what's the mindedness we're supposed to have? We're to be like-minded by being Christ-minded. That's what he says here in verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. Now that does not mean that we all kind of think alike. It doesn't mean we all think the same thing. I know maybe you've had somebody that you have learned, and maybe you just know them really well, you grew up with them, uh, maybe you're married to them, but you just ha have a way of thinking and, and you kind of think along the same tracks, if you know what I mean. I know it doesn't mean you can read their mind, but you, you kind of think the same way. I have, I have some friends that are in ministry now that we don't think the same. We don't share the exact same thoughts on stuff. But if you were to really pick it apart, we have the same philosophy of ministry. We have the same heart. We have the same desires. And so we have sort of a like-mindedness that's not uniformity, but it's unity in Christ. That's what we're to have. Be like-minded by putting on the mind of Christ. Now, the question is, what's the mind of Christ? Well, he explains it by giving an illustration. What... what what is Christ's mind? Well, it's a mind of, of absolute humility that's willing to set aside heaven's glory for the needs of others. That's what he talks about. Look at verse 6. He gets really into the heart of this. Jesus, he leaves off talking in verse 5, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of of men. Here is a description of what Christ's mind is. And this is an awesome section. The theology here is almost too deep to comprehend. It's talking here about the incarnation. We talk about the incarnation, it's it's God coming in the flesh. That Jesus entered into human experience, into a human body. I was trying to figure out some way at the end of last year that we could maybe line up Philippians so that I could preach through the first chapter and we would hit this section right at Christmas time. And, and I tried to do it several different ways. I couldn't work it out because otherwise I'd have to rush through chapter one. I didn't want to have to do that. But here's the point is that incarnation is not just a Christmas truth that we talk about during December. It's an all the year truth that we need to know. The coming of Christ in human flesh. It's a very also practical truth. That's how Paul uses it here. A practical truth to instruct us with how to live. If we're to have the mind of Christ, we need to understand the mind of Christ. The Bible here gives us a glimpse, first of all, of Jesus' inherent position that he had. His inherent position. We see this at the beginning of verse 6. Jesus who being in the form of God. And that helps us to see the, the incredible reality of Jesus' humility. To see where he came from. What he gave up. What he 
is inherently as God. It says here he was in the form of God. Now that may throw you off a little bit because it might seem to you that, well, Jesus was just in the form of God. He wasn't really God, but he was just in the form of God. And that would be to miss what Paul is saying here. He's not saying that Jesus sort of looked like God, had some of the qualities of God, but wasn't really. This statement is drawing an absolute equivalence with God. He says he was in the form of God. The word he uses here is the Greek word morphe, translated form. We get our English word metamorphosis from this. Well, the word morphe talks about the essential qualities of something. So when we talk about morphe, it is the characteristics or qualities that are essential to something to make it what it is. In other words, if you take the morphe out, it stops being that. So Jesus was, in his essential nature, God. That's what it's getting at. Let me use an illustration and say it like this. Imagine that my son Nolan and I were playing with Play-Doh at our table. And this happens regularly, so it's not hard to imagine. As we're making shapes and molding things out of the Play-Doh, imagine that I make a little car, put some little Play-Doh wheels on it, and the whole thing, kind of shape it and fashion it to look like an automobile. Now, you might say, what you've made is in the form of a car, but it's not a car. And that would be a wrong use. That's not morphe. Now imagine for a second a Volkswagen Beetle and a Chevrolet Corvette. They both have the morphe of being a car, the essential characteristics of being a car. Even though they look very different, they both are cars at nature. My Play-Doh car has the morphe of being Play-Doh. It'll never be anything else. It can never be anything else. Yeah, it can be made to look like something, but its morphe will always be Play-Doh. The, the automobile will always be an automobile. That's what this is stating. Jesus had the morphe, the form of God, the essential nature and characteristics which cannot be changed. To, to change the morphe is to become something entirely different, which he cannot do. So the point is the absolute equality of God. It also recognizes here the preexistence of Jesus as well. Do you notice this? Who being in the form of God. He didn't become God. He didn't at some point start his existence. He has always been and forever will be God of very God. So contrary to what the cults would say, and many of the cults would twist this passage, Jesus is the preexistent God. Nothing less. And see, that's why his humility is so shocking. It's not like he's just an angel who took a step down on the ladder. It's that God, the creator, entered into his creation. The humility is, is staggering here. Not only do we notice Jesus' inherent position, we also notice his incredible condescension. His incredible condescension. Look at verse 6. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. This is another one of those statements that can easily mis be misunderstood. I remember learning this verse just this way, that Jesus did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And I always kind of wondered, robbery? What's that talking about? You know, Why did Jesus have to rob anybody, or why would he even think of robbing anybody? Um, 
And so sometimes the, the translation itself can kind of throw us off a little bit. Although robbery is actually a good translation of the word. The word here talks about grabbing something selfishly. That's exactly what a robber is doing, right? He's going in, he sees something he wants, he takes it, he grabs it selfishly. Other translations, though, render this verse, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, held on to selfishly. I think that's getting more at the point. It's not that Jesus was tempted to take something that wasn't his. Everything belonged to Jesus. He's the creator God. But he did not see his position, that inherent position he had, as something that he would not give up. He didn't selfishly consider his own needs, but instead he looked to the needs of others. He was, in a word, selfless. Even when it came to his divine privileges as the Son of God, the glory that was his in eternity past, is not something that he gripped and said, I will not give up under any circumstances. This is a a wonderful picture of selflessness. And the main point Paul is making here is that Jesus was completely unselfish when he gave up that privileged position, the glory and all that came with it. He didn't act selfishly. Despite the heavy theology that comes through, even on just verse 6, Let's not forget the purpose of the passage, to exhort us. See, Jesus set the pace. He was a selfless servant. He thought nothing of his own, but only for those he came to love. He wasn't concerned that he get the right treatment. In fact, Jesus throughout his life was treated horribly. But he cared about the needs of others. You'll you'll find no greater example of selflessness than Jesus coming to this earth. And that's why Paul uses it here. Here's the point, though. As you think about life here, and as we think about humility in the church, as Paul's been talking about, how selfless are you? Do you follow the example of Jesus, who cared nothing of, his, of himself, but served others. Remember, he came not to be served, but to serve. I think a lot of us, though, if we don't embrace actively the mind of Christ, we have a self-serving nature, don't we? Others should serve us. And any suggestion that we, we should lay down our privileges or position is unthinkable. I mean, imagine this. If, if Christ laid down heaven's glory to come be with us, to serve us, how can we not be selfless in the light of that? And yet, we don't want to be bothered by other people's needs. Like I said, that self-serving attitude. Don't bother me with that. That's not my problem, we say. You know, sometimes we huff and puff because... Someone asks us to give one hour of our time to help them. Jesus gave up a whole lot more than an hour of his time to serve us. Sometimes we get upset and are, are angry because we're asked or we're invited to set aside our favorite TV show to go serve somebody. 
Well, Jesus set aside a lot more than his favorite program. He set aside heaven and its glories. He was completely selfless. So how much can you put aside your own comfort? How much of your own convenience and ego can you set aside to serve others? Can you learn to forget self? To be selfless like Jesus was? Here's the truth. You're never more like Jesus than when you are selflessly serving someone else. Not only did Jesus lay the pattern, though, of selfless service, he also laid a pattern of sacrificial service. Sacrificial service. Yes, selfless, but also think of all that he gave. Jesus ultimately gave his life for us. No greater sacrifice could he possibly give. So if we're to be Christ-like servants, it's going to require us to make sacrifices. I want to look at verse 7. We kind of left off here. Jesus, being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, to be grasped selfishly. But instead, verse 7, he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So again, rather than clinging to his privileges, Jesus, the perfect servant, sacrificially gave up all of his rights and his divine prerogatives in order to come in the likeness of men. Let me help clarify this with a couple of statements. First of all, I think it would be helpful for us to realize what he gave up. What did Jesus give up exactly? Verse 7 says he made himself of no reputation. Some versions will say he emptied himself. The word in Greek uh, gives us the title. Some people have called this passage the kenosis passage. Kenao means to empty. And there's a lot of theological discussion on what this means. What did Jesus empty himself of? Certainly, Jesus did not empty himself of his divine nature. In other words, he didn't empty himself of godhood. And that would be impossible. Remember, that's his morphe. But what did he empty himself of? Well, here's the thing. The verse doesn't have a direct object. The verb doesn't. It just says he emptied himself. It doesn't say he emptied himself of blank. What, what did he empty himself? So the idea is he emptied himself. He lowered himself. He humbled himself. And if we're going to add an object at all, what did he empty himself of? Well, his glory. In heaven, he was showered with praises the light of his divine presence was overwhelming. I mean, it was, imagine him sitting on the throne. All of that he set aside. All of that he laid aside. He gave up. So if, if he gave up anything, it was his glory and the appearance of his divine majesty. But really the idea here is not the object, it's that he humbled himself. He emptied himself. And how did he do that? How did he empty himself? Well, ultimately, he emptied himself by what he took up. So not only did he give up, so we, we look at him giving up here, but it was by what he took up. And it seems like a paradox, doesn't it? Emptying oneself by taking up something. But it's really not when you think about it. There's a lot of people, and we could give examples, who take up a role that lowers them. Right? Imagine you have a, a high position 
say, a, a king or a prince who takes up the role of being a servant, who takes up the role of being a, um, you know, a driver or you know, mucking the stalls or whatever. He's taken up a new role which has, in a sense, lowered him, right? It's kind of like the famous story of uh, Queen Elizabeth II when she was yet a princess. Uh, during World War II, Queen Elizabeth, well, who, who is now Queen Elizabeth, uh, went to, into military service and served as a mechanic and a driver during World War II. Yes, she, she didn't have to do that. In fact, her father dis- tried to discourage her from doing that. But she wanted to serve in the war effort, and so she lowered herself. Without giving up being princess, she lowered herself to a new role, which would involve working on cars and driving big diesel trucks. The point is, you can lower yourself by taking on. That's what Jesus does here. Well, what did he take on? Verse 7. He made himself of no reputation. That is, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. So how did Jesus empty himself? Well, he took on to himself the role of a servant. Interesting, by the way, the word uh, form here is the same Greek word morphe. So it's not just that he appeared, it's not just that he sort of feigned being a servant. He was a servant. He had the essential nature of being a servant. And in this way, he lowered himself. The Greek word here for servant, doulos, really might be translated slave. That's typically how it was used. All the Roman Empire was filled with slaves. It was the lowest possible rung of society that you could be on. And Jesus says, the Bible says, he emptied himself and took on the role of the slave. This is incredible. But the example continues even in the Gospels. We read in John 13. The disciples had been arguing amongst themselves, again, that famous discussion, who's the greatest, who's the greatest? Well, they came on that night before Jesus was crucified to the upper room, and all the disciples realized there was no servant on duty to wash the feet. And none of the the disciples, though dust themselves, wanted to lower themselves to the position of a servant, because that's just humiliating. So they're all kind of looking around at each other like, who's going to do it? Because nobody wants to you know, stoop that low. But then the creator of the universe, who's there in the room with them, stoops that low. And he takes the basin and he takes the towel and he begins to wash the feet of the disciples. A job that no respectable rabbi would take upon himself. In fact, no respectable gentleman of any kind. And yet Jesus stoops to humbly serve his disciples. He took on the form of a servant and so humbled himself. Not only that, he took on human flesh, human nature. We see this in the next phrase. He says, not only did he take on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. The Bible is so clear on this that he took on human flesh. We already talked about the incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. There are two expressions, one at the end of verse 7, one at the beginning of verse 8. Let's read them together. And coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. Again, we have to clarify this because it could be so easy to misread it. 
likeness and appearance makes it sound like he just looked like a man. He wasn't really, but he just kind of had the likeness of being a man. That's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus didn't merely appear to be a man. He wasn't masquerading as something different than what he was. He truly was a man. I had a professor who called this idea, this wrong idea. He called it Clark, Clark Kent Christology. You know, Clark Kent was newspaper reporter. He would wear the glasses, but as soon as he would take them off, he was Superman, right? And he would rip off the, and he would wear the outfit, and he would fly, and he'd shoot lasers, and all of that stuff. And the idea was Superman came from Krypton, landed on Earth, and would disguise himself as a person, right? He would wear the suit, he'd wear the glasses, and everybody immediately forgot what he looked like. And he lived as a reporter. He never was a reporter, was he? He never was a human. He was always the son of Krypton. And he always had his powers, but he kind of just pretended to be a person, disguised himself, and then whenever he needed to, he would break out in full superhero outfit. That was not Jesus. Jesus didn't just sort of come down, he was God among us, he, he kind of looked like us, but he never really was one of us. That's not what the Bible teaches. He became 100% man. He was as human as you and I are. And yet, here's the mystery. He was also 100% God. And trying to put those two together, the math never quite adds up. But that's exactly what the Bible teaches. 100% God. He did not just have the appearance of being a man. In fact, look at verse 8. He says, and being found in appearance as a man. The idea there is not that he only appeared to be a man. The idea is that he didn't appear as God. He wasn't flying around and he, he, there was no light emanating from him. Despite all the ancient pictures of him having a halo around his head, there was no halo. He just looked like a man. He didn't have the appearance that maybe he should have had if, as the glorious God, creator God. Instead, he appeared just as a simple person. He humbled himself. He sacrificed all that he had and lowered himself to this level. He appeared as a man. You know, we get to Christmas time, and there's a lot of songs we love at Christmas time. I love Away in a Manger, just like everybody does, I think. But I've always never quite been happy about that one line that says, uh, radiant beams from thy holy face. It's almost like he's in the manger, and there's just light beaming out of the, the manger, you know, filling the whole stable with light. And that's not really the picture you get. In fact, I think there's another song, Christmas song, that captures this well. It's Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It says this, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Veiled in flesh. I like that expression. Because we weren't seeing the fullness of Jesus' deity. We weren't seeing his glory on display. We were seeing it veiled. He appeared as a man. Finally, though, he also took up the cross of Calvary. Look at how far Jesus humbles himself. The role of a servant, the likeness of a man, and then at the end of verse 8, it says he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He chose to die. And no greater sacrifice can we possibly understand. He gave up his life on a cross. The cross 
most humiliating way to die. We'll say more about the cross here in a moment, but let me drive home this point. A a Christ-like servant is sacrificial, just like Jesus was. He gave up all that was his in glory, and he chose to walk in dusty sandals. And he lived a life like you and I live. And he got hungry and tired. He, he gave up the, the worship of angels for the rejection of men. Jesus humbled himself sacrificially, and he served us by giving up. And the point is this, that if we're going to serve like Jesus served, if we're going to be humble people, we need to be sacrificial. Giving up for the good of others. Instead of clinging to what we think we deserve and what we think we're due, instead we give up, sacrifice those things to serve others. I found a really startling example of Christ-like sacrificial service this week in the life of a little-known missionary named Eleanor Chestnut. She was a Presbyterian missionary to China. She arrived in China in 1893. Her first task was to help build a hospital, which she did with her own money, with her own hands. She laid the bricks building this hospital to serve the Chinese people in the name of Christ. Well, the hospital was finally built, and they began serving patients there. On one occasion, she performed an amputation on a, a low, low-class common worker in China. This fellow who was, probably had no money to his name, she had to perform an amputation. Well, there were some complications in the surgery, and there needed to be a skin graft. So she did that, and he walked out of there many days later. Sometime later, though, she was questioned about a problem with her leg, and she said, oh, it's nothing. However, another nurse that worked with her there revealed that the skin graft for the quote-unquote good-for-nothing coolie had come from her own leg. And for her, she said, oh, that's nothing. See, talk about a person who understands sacrificial service. To give of her own flesh to serve someone who probably is not going to repay her, may not even say thank you at the end of the day. That's the mind of Christ, to serve others sacrificially. There's a third quality, though, and we'll go quickly here. The mind of Christ and a Christ-like servant must be submissive. Submissive. You see this at the very end of verse 8. He became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That's an interesting expression to add in there, right? Obedient to the point of death. You see, Jesus came as a servant. And here's the thing about servants. Servants obey what they're told. In fact, that's the whole idea of being a servant, isn't it? It's not that you get to set your agenda. It's that you're told what to do. And you serve someone else. So, frankly, a servant at the end of the day is someone who receives his orders from someone else. Jesus did it, and he did it submissively and obedient, in this case to his father, his heavenly father. You see this all over in the Gospels. Jesus is constantly saying, not my will, but yours be done. I'm here to do my father's will. That was the consuming passion of his life, was to be obedient to the father. And whatever the father commanded, he would do. That's what a Christ-like servant does. He humbled himself and became obedient That's not to say he wasn't obedient before. He's always been obedient in the sense of 
there's no disharmony in the Trinity. But he did what the Father required. The, The plan was the cross, right from the beginning. He took on the form of a servant, and he didn't, he didn't push back. You know, Jesus, we have no record of Jesus ever saying, Father, you know, I've done what you asked, but this is too far. Uh, this is just unacceptable. Sorry, I can't, I can't do that much. No, he always says, Father, whatever you will. He humbled himself. And, and here's how far. It says to the death, to the point of death, even the death of a cross, even to a cross death. For Jesus, total obedience to God led to the cross. And the way it is said would have really impacted the Philippians, I think, because they understood the horror of the cross. We kind of lost it today because the cross is a Christian symbol, but then it was a graphic and gory thing. In fact, the Roman historian Cicero, writing around the time of Jesus, says, the very word cross should be removed not only from a person of Roman citizenship, but also from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. It was too horrific to even contemplate, Cicero is getting at. See, the cross not only was about suffering and pain, it was also about humiliation. So Jesus humbled himself. And you notice the passage, it has this sort of descending character, doesn't it? You know, he, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, and so he emptied himself. But not only did he empty himself, he took on the form of a servant. And not only did he empty himself and take on the form of a servant, he also came in the likeness of men. And not only did he empty himself and take on the role of a servant and empty himself and, and take on the, the likeness of men, he also appeared as a man. And not only did he empty himself and take on the role of a servant and the likeness of men and be found in appearance as a man, he obeyed even to death. And and all that, he also was obedient to the death of a cross, the most humiliating kind of death. So the, the point would come across pretty loud and clear to the Philippians. If Jesus humbled himself to the lowest point, can we not humble ourselves and serve one another? He was submissive, obedient. Here's the question, though. Do we follow in Jesus' example in this pattern? Are we obedient to God? Are are we willing to be the servant rather than the leader? As Jesus said, true greatness is found in being a servant. He was the greatest of all. He was the creator of everything, and yet he became the servant to everyone. So if you desire to be humble and like-minded, just as Paul commanded here in Philippians, then look to the example of the perfect servant savior. These three statements, descriptions of Jesus, that he was selfless, sacrificial, and submissive, gives us a pattern in which to mold ourselves. Here's the good news. When we come back in verses 9 through 11, we get to see the other side of Jesus' humiliation. His glorification. But just a couple of reminders as we close this morning. Number one, you cannot be a self-serving servant. Get that? You cannot be a self-serving servant. It's not in the characteristics. If you're going to serve the Lord, if you're going to serve others, 
You can't be thinking of yourself. You must be selfless like Jesus was. You cannot be a self-serving servant. Secondly, you cannot be a servant without sacrifice. It, you just can't. It's going to cost you something. You're going to have to give up something if you're going to serve others like Jesus served others. And finally, you cannot be a self-directed servant. You cannot be a self-directed servant. You don't get to call the shots. You're not in charge. That's what it means to be a servant. The more these lessons sink into us, the more our mind will be like the mind of Christ. Let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you for this passage and its